broadcast for an incoming transmission from the library. It appears that Moose Docking has been able to make contact and the Steampunk Dental House will begin transmitting momentarily. Stay tuned for more news from these intrepid defenders of all our literary freedoms. And welcome to the Steampunk Dollhouse. I am Blue Stocking, and I'll be your host and librarian for the next little while. If you are a returning listener, I thank you for continuing to listen. If you're new to this, welcome to the Dollhouse. We are very happy to have you with us. Uh, just a few notes before we begin. Note the first is that I am having a serious allergy attack this week. So if I sound a little stuffy, I apologize. But I will make sure to uh, Steven out all of the sniffing and snorting and uh, anything else that you might hear that would be unpleasant. So we'll get through this. Uh, just know that I'll be a little stuffy. Now, um, I also wanted to talk about, in our last discussion, we discussed the trope of the man out of time uh, that Oswald Bastable falls into um, and how his is a little bit different in that he goes forward through time. And almost as soon as I posted the show, I remembered this fascinating little book that we read in one of my history classes a few years ago. It's called Looking Backward, and it was written by Edward Bellamy in 1888. Now, the plot concerns a young man named Julian West. He is a Bostonian of social means who is plagued by rampant insomnia. To combat this, he builds an elaborate sleeping chamber in his basement, and he has a hypnotist put him to sleep each night. Uh, Unfortunately for him, there is a night when his sleep is so deep that he doesn't wake up until the year 2000. Uh, America has since become a socialist utopia that Mr. West is not able to navigate without the help of his guide, a gentleman named Dr. Leet, who is also the man who found him in the foundations of the house. So West finds that much of the world, uh, except for a few holdouts, is a cooperative socialist society. Uh, Many of the things that Bellamy describes almost seem prescient, like the large stores where everyone can purchase their necessities. The descriptions of the stores almost makes them sound like a Walmart-type big box store uh, where people use items that are very similar to debit cards to make their purchases. He also, quote-unquote, predicted that people would be able to receive music and sermons directly into their homes, uh, much like television or radio today. Now, crime that doesn't occur because of inequalities is looked at as an atavistic trait, Uh, Bellamy did believe that crime and protest over inequalities would all go away once an equal and socialist society took over. And so anyone who committed a crime was seen as having um, a primitive brain, uh, not because of inequalities. Not for a valid reason, rather. They they weren't protesting or committing crimes for valid reasons, but because there was something wrong with their brains. Um, Now there are, including that one, there are some definite throwback ideas that date the book. Uh, One of the biggest is the view of women. Um, Again, this was written in 1888 by a man who believed in a socialist and equal society, but women have been freed of domestic work in this society, and now they have an opportunity to marry for love or to marry, as Bellamy puts it, uh, those men that would make the best fathers. Money is no longer a consideration in choosing a spouse, um, but and discussions are somewhat more frank, 
But Bellamy also tap dances around the issue of women's suffrage, uh, which was a raging and heated debate in his own time. And while he does push the idea of economic equality for future women, the sexes are still rigidly segregated in a way that prevents women from ever holding a high governmental position. And women do not attain status as full-on adults until they marry and have children. So it's almost as if he didn't want to offend his readers by having the audacity to suggest that women should ever be able to have full equality. Um, And the book itself is relatively short, but it is an interesting read in order to get something of an idea of what people actually in Bastable's uh, rough time frame would have considered utopia. Uh, This book was written 14 years before the Oswald Bastable character began his adventures. Now, Bellamy was clearly smitten with this kind of future, but I, I think that the eventual catastrophes of Bastable's varying futures would be more on the mark. Um, Utopia can't work, not on a worldwide scale, in my opinion. I don't think it's possible. Um, There are too many competing opinions and ideologies uh, in humans, and I just, I don't think it would ever work. Now, at an additional note, at the end of the Moorcock episode, I did refer to Korzynowski as Bastable's psychopomp, and I compared him to Homer with Dante, and that was a misspeak, of course. I did mean to say Virgil, not Homer, and I actually realized what I said while I was mixing the episode, but I was too tired to fix it, so I am apologizing now. Uh, And I also wanted to mention, I did bring this up on my website and on Twitter, but I also wanted to reiterate it here. I will not be soliciting any ARCs or books for review, and I will not be accepting any for review. Um, I've done that route before, and it's a really huge pain in the ass, and I've had way too many run-ins with authors and editors who didn't like the reviews I gave their books. Uh, So the books that we'll be discussing on the show are almost all books that I have read more than once, and I am familiar with their plots and how they figure into the discussions I want to have. All these books that I've chosen um, that I'll be talking about, I've chosen for very specific reasons. So anything outside from any... uh, authors or publishers, it most likely wouldn't fit in with what I want, Um, so I'm just going to say no exceptions. I'm not taking them, but I appreciate the offers. And uh, I think that's all of the notes and corrections corners um, and the the warning of my stuffy nose. So that concludes the introductory part of the show. Uh, Let's talk. Alrighty, today we are discussing the Clockwork Century series by Sherry Priest. Uh, There are six full-length books, uh, novels, in the series, and then there's also a novella and a short story. We're just going to be talking about the actual novels, though, um, because that's going to take us enough time. The first novel in the series is called Bone Shaker, and it's set in the uh, late 1800s, uh, late 19th century, in Seattle. But it is not a Seattle that we know, and... It is not uh, an America that we know. Now, uh, what happened was their civil war still happened in the series. The civil war has been going on for 20 years. Uh, But when the book starts, it's still early in the civil war, and we all remember our American history. There were rumors of gold in Alaska in the Klondike, and so everyone was was rushing. (laughs) No pun intended. Everybody was rushing to get to Alaska, uh, but... Some Russian inventors or some Russian investors wanted to um, create a machine or were going to sponsor an inventor that could create a machine which could break through uh, the ice in what was still Russia-owned Alaska. 
Um, and so Dr. Leviticus Blue um, and cre- creates the incredible bone-shaking drill engine, or the bone shaker. Um, this is, if you're not familiar with what bone shakers were, they were a type of bicycle uh, in that area, very uncomfortable, that's the name bone shaker. Um, but unfortunately what happens is that the bone shaker, eh, we're still not really sure at the beginning of the book, but the bone shaker goes out of control, uh, it rips through downtown Seattle underground, it's underground the whole time that it's doing this, <laughs> it tears through underground Seattle, it destroys several blocks of downtown, um, it hits a lot of banks, curiously enough, uh, a lot of bank vaults are ripped open from underneath. Um, and but the and that's bad enough. But the worst part is that while the bone shaker is rampaging uh, underground Seattle, it runs into a vein of something called blight gas, which nobody knew what that was, where it came from, what it did. Uh, but this gas, this yellow, heavy, noxious gas, sulfurous gas, started spilling out or spilling. I guess is not the right word. Started pouring sort of floating up from the ground, um, and it was, at that time, um, right there at the very beginning, it was killing anyone who breathed it and turning them into um, what they call rotters. Uh, this is supposed to be a non-supernatural type of zombie. It's blight gas, so they are called rotters, um, and what eventually happens is that a wall is just erected around Seattle proper to try to contain the gas, um, and when the authorities show up, for Leviticus, he's nowhere to be found. Uh, only his young wife, his very, very young wife, Briar, who has no idea or professes to have no idea what's happened, what's going on. Um, and so we go to 16 years later, and Briar and her son now, uh, Zeke, are living in the outskirts, um, a very poor area that's built up, kind of sprung up around um, the Seattle Wall. And life has been very difficult for Briar, um, but she supports herself and Zeke by uh, working at the uh, water processing plant uh, because what they find eventually over time is that the blight gas, while it is toxic, it can be cleaned from the water given enough uh, processes and purification steps. Uh, It's not good water, but they can clean it and they can reuse it. Uh, So... uh, Briar is working there. Things are not going well for her. Uh, Everybody treats her like a pariah uh, for multiple reasons. One of the, obviously her husband, but there's also the situation with her father. Her father was Maynard Wilkes, who was the sheriff of Seattle. And he was a good man. Well, he was an honorable sheriff, not necessarily a good father. Um, But when the blight gas was hitting um, and starting to sweep over the city, nobody gave a thought to the prisoners that happened to be locked up in Seattle, in the prison at the time. Uh, everybody was just going to leave them there as they were fleeing the city, but Maynard went ahead and released them, uh, which did not go over well either, and he actually ended up being returned. He was ill at the time. Maynard was already dying from a blight gas. Two of the prisoners returned him to his home, uh, put him in his bed, did not take anything from him, put all of his gear around him, and left, and that will become important later. Um, but so 16 years later, uh, Briar and Zeke are not living a good life, um, and Zeke has had to grow up with tales of his father and what a horrible person his father was. Uh, and he doesn't want to believe it. He doesn't want to believe it's true. And he believes that his grandfather was a hero. Um, so Zeke decides to break into the city and go find evidence that his father was innocent. Because Briar has never really told him anything about his father. 
so Briar um, comes home and finds that Zeke is gone, and it's it's obvious that he's gone, gone. Now Zeke is sixteen years old at this time, so Leviticus never knew that Briar was pregnant. Briar didn't know that she was pregnant until after everything happened, and she had already gone back to her father's house uh, in the aftermath. So she finds out that Zeke is gone. Uh, she realizes where he's gone, um, and she gets this information from Zeke's friend, a young boy named Rector who is one of the blight orphans. Uh, there was a whole lot of foundlings that were left on the doorstep of the churches, doorsteps of the churches in the aftermath of the blight. Uh, they're just, they're blight orphans or foundlings. Um, but Rector also um, is involved in the dealing of a drug called sap, and sap will play a very important part through all of the, the books. Um, it is processed blight gas, and it is disgusting, and it does horrible things to people. People sniff it, they drink it, they smoke it. Um, it's like meth times 9,000. It does horrible things to the body. doesn't necessarily turn them into rotters because they're not breathing pure gas, but what they are taking in is nasty. Uh, and that's what Zeke's friend does. He sells the stuff, and he also uses it. Uh, so Briar tracks Rector down. She pummels the information out of him um, and gears herself up to go into the city. The problem is it's very, very difficult to get into the city, she finds out that Zeke went in through a drainage hole or a runoff hole in the wall, but when she tries to go in after him... Now, he's already been gone several hours at this point, too. He's got a good head start on her. But when she tries to go into the drainage hole to follow him, uh, an earthquake hits and completely collapses it. So what she has to do at this point is uh, find someone to take her over the wall because airships! This, these books are full of amazing and terrible devices and inventions, um, and the airships are everywhere. So she hitches a ride with a captain named Andan Cly, a super tall, kind of scary-looking dude, but he's a good man. Um, and he actually, what we'll find out later, is he is one of the prisoners that Maynard let go. It was him and his brother that took Maynard back to the house um, when he was dying right after the, the blight hit. So he has a, somewhat of a, an affection for... Um, Maynard and Maynard's daughter. So while this is going on, she's trying to get a ride over the wall. She, uh, inside the walls, because the book goes back and forth between Briar and Zeke's perspective, uh, Zeke almost immediately runs into a shady dude named Rudy who claims to be an injured vet of the, you know, two-decade-long uh, Civil War. Now, Rudy tells Zeke that he can take him to his parents' house because that's where Zeke wants to go. He wants to go to the, the nice house his parents lived in to find evidence of his father's innocence. So they, on the way, they encounter a Native woman, a Native American woman uh, named Princess Angeline who does not like Rudy and does not like the guy that Rudy works for. Um, so she, she ends up Rudy, um, try, she thinks she's trying to free Zeke. She wounds Rudy, but Zeke is so scared he takes off with Rudy um, and while they're running away, Briar gets into the walls. Um, Clyde drops her down a uh, one of the air pipes that comes up over the walls. Uh, she has a bit of a, a rough time. She gets scared when she lands in the underground because there are a lot of Chinese men that live down there. They're the ones that are keeping the fresh air pumped into the underground. So that's what Briar finds out is that there are a lot of people living in the underground. They're called doornails. Uh, and they have chosen to live inside the walls of Seattle for their own reasons. So while Briar is running through all of this, she gets attacked by rotters. Um, she manages to make it to the roof of a building, and she is uh, she runs into or 
She comes in contact with a Jeremiah Swackhammer and a machine or a gun that he calls the Doozy Dazer. And what that does, it's uh, almost like a sound weapon, a percussive sound weapon. Uh, it knocks the zombies flat for uh, long enough for everybody to run away, but it takes a long time to charge back up, so it really can only be used in emergency situations. So he takes her to a bar that's been named after her father. She meets uh, the bartender, Lucio Gunning, who Lucy is amazing. She only has one arm, and that arm is clockwork, and she uses it at one point as um, Sherry Priest describes it. I think the, the quote was, she slaps the sinuses right out of one of the rotters. Um, so Re- Lucy's kind of a badass. And while they're down there, the rotters uh, swarm into the underground somehow and attack the bar, and so everyone has to drop down through a trapdoor and get out of there. And what they find out later is that um, the rotters were set on them by Minerect, who is the big bad for this book. Um, there's some question over who Minerect is. He makes amazing things like the Doozy Dazer that Swackhammer uses and Swackhammer's big, fancy, awesome um, gas mask. And that's the other thing. Everybody that lives in there, anyone that goes within the walls, they have to, they, you have to wear a gas mask until you were in one of the underground uh, purified areas. Everyone has to wear a gas mask, or you will take in the gas and you will die. Well, you won't die. You'll turn into a rotter. So, Minerit, bad guy. <laughs> and what happens, everybody thinks he might be Leviticus Blue, and that's what he's making everybody think he is. Um, but Briar, for reasons of her own, knows that he is not Leviticus Blue. She knows that he's not. She won't tell anybody why she knows this, but she does know this. Now, while this is happening with her, Rudy has managed to get Zeke far enough along. Zeke stumbles into... A whole bunch of stuff happens with the crashing airships, and Zeke ends up stumbling into Minerick's clutches. Um, and Minerick is holding him hostage and trying to make Zeke think he is his father. Um, Zeke's not really sure. He doesn't know why. He, he doesn't know what to think. He's a 16-year-old boy, and he's scared and confused. Um, eventually, Briar finds out um, that where Zeke is, a huge battle breaks out. Um... <laughs> Swackhammer and because Briar goes to the Lucy takes Briar to Minerect because Lucy needs to get her arm fixed. She shouldn't have used it as a battering ram and she did. Um, but Minerect won't let Briar go. And so Lucy comes back with all of the doornails and Angeline shows up and they attack and there's a huge fight, but all the noise brings the rotters in. Eventually, Briar's reunited with Zeke. Um, Minerect is killed. And they get out of there. Now, unfortunately, in the heat of all of this, uh, Swackhammer is injured. And he's in a very critical condition. Um, finally, they get him out of there. Um, Angeline kills Minerect. She, because she knows who he is. She says that he, was, uh, he killed her daughter, is who he was. And after all of this amazing stuff happens, they all escape. Um... And Dan Clyde shows back up, just like he said he would, with Krog and Haney, who is awesome and is in the next book. Um, they come in. They pick her up. She says, can you take us? Make, we need to make one quick stop. You know, and if there's anything still in the house, you guys can have it. So they take her to the old house, and she takes Zeke underground to the Bone Shaker, because the Bone Shaker came back home after it did what it did. So it's been in the basement of their house for 20-odd years, 16 years. Um... And Briar tells Zeke that she killed Leviticus herself when he tried to get out of Seattle with all the money that he had stolen. That is why she knew the whole time that Minerick was not blue. She killed him 
she was young at the time, too. She was, what, 17, maybe? She killed him. She didn't take any of the money. She only took a few things, and she left. So she shows Zeke her father or his father's body because the body is still in the bone shaker. He's mummified at this point. Um, Zeke hugs her. He loves her. He understands, and they take what they can that's left in there. Clyde takes what he can, and they all get out of there. And Briar will go on to serve as um, sheriff of the Dornell community. See, Maynard was kind of a patron saint to them at this point. Um, Maynard kept the peace. And what they say, or they say, keep, me, keep Maynard's peace. And Maynard obeyed the spirit of the law, if not the letter of the law, when he let the prisoners free. So that is Bone Shaker, and it's just the beginning of the whole thing. Now, when we get to Clementine, um, Clementine focuses on Krog and Haney, who we just met in Boneshaker. Uh, Krogan is a airship captain, uh, African-American, or runaway slave. Uh, he was never free. He's a runaway slave. He's one of the making madmen. Um, he's big. He's badass. He's, he's scarred up. He don't take any shit from anybody. Um, and just to, to explain, uh, in this civil war that's been going on for so long, all but two states, I can't remember exactly which ones, all but two states will, would eventually just go ahead and abolish slavery anyway. Um, there was an issue. It became, after going on for so long and so long and so long and so long, um, they just went ahead and abolished it. But they're still fighting the war. But there are two states that are still holdouts. I think Mississippi and Georgia that still have it, but everybody else... Um, has abolished it. So, Krogan is a runaway slave, air pirate, smuggler, just all-around badass dude. Uh, he has two um, guys that travel with him. His uh, co-pilots are Lamar, who is his engineer, his mechanical whiz, and Simeon. Now, Lamar is from, well, he's American or African-American. Um, I believe he's also a runaway. And Simeon, who is from the British East Indies or Jamaica. Um, and they, they air pirate. They are badass dudes. And then during the events of Bone Shaker, their ship, the Free Crow, is um, stolen by a guy named Felton Brink, a red-headed dude, another pirate. Um, they don't know why Brink already had his own airship and would choose to abandon it and steal the Free Crow. Um, so... There's a setup for big stuff's happening. Now, so Krog and Haney, he tries to get his ship back, which is what escalated the um, big airship battle in the middle of Seattle when Zeke got lost and then taken by Minarect. So that doesn't work. So Krogan's going to have to get another airship that he can take to chase Haney, or chase uh, Felton, because he wants his ship back. He wants his free crow back. He stole it fair and square, and he wants it back. He's had that ship for a long time. So, he is chasing after Felton Brink and whatever it was that Brink needed the uh, Free Crow for, which has been renamed the Clementine at this point, though no one knows why. Now, we're also going to meet a woman named Maria Isabella Boyd. If you know your history, you know that she was very, very real. She was an actress, and she was a Confederate spy, one of the most successful Confederate spies. So, the history of Belle Boyd is way too much to go into here. Uh, Look her up. She's... She's an interesting character uh, in a time when women were not supposed to be interesting characters. So, she's a character in this book. <laughs> she, um, 
She's been cast out by the the Confederate. In the book, she marries a Union soldier who then dies. Um, she's cast out by the Confederacy. She's too high profile now. She can't do. You know, everybody knows who she is. So she's no use as a spy anymore. But she wanted, she didn't even get a pension. Um, she's just gone. So she ends up being snapped up by Pinkerton, the Pinkerton. Um, he believes that she can do good work for him, and she is assigned to find out why Krog and Haney is chasing the quote-unquote Clementine and to stop him so that the shipment can reach... Um, it's supposed to go to Danville. It's, it's a, the, Felton is working for the Union. Uh, again, don't know why yet, but Felton is working for the Union, uh, and he is hauling something, and that's something that... Um, it's something that whatever it is, it's very, very heavy, and they can see the way the ship is, is dragging, that it's, it's taking something big. So Bell Boyd is set on uh, Krog and Haney's tail, so she's chasing after them. When she finally encounters them uh, stealing another ship called the Valkyrie, which will uh, get them where they need to go and get their ship back, she comes on. She charges on board. She attempts to take them all at gunpoint, uh, but the problem is that um, the ship that they're trying to steal, they start to be set upon by the the uh, guards in the shipyard and the soldiers. So she ends up trapped in the ship when they have to take off, and they're still shooting at the ship. They're still trying to take it down. Uh, the guards and the soldiers. So basically, if she doesn't want to die, she's got to help fend them off because she is now trapped on this ship with the three of them. Um, and she, the woman is adaptable, man. She, she yanks off her, her petticoats and she climbs into the, the ball turret on the airship and she just goes to town and, you know, she gets it taken care of. And so what ends up happening, it's clear to her that she has not been given all the information about why she's supposed to stop Haney and what is going to Danville. Um, and so they agree to work together, um, for the moment to try to figure out what the hell is going on and why his ship was stolen. What we'll end up finding out is that uh, there was a woman that was supposed to have been buried uh, in uh, Seattle or an area near there, and she was uh, she had been a brothel madam, and she had this diamond, this huge orange diamond, the Clementine. Um, and when she died, she was buried with it, and her ca- casket was filled with cement, so... That diamond is needed to fuel a, or to power a weapon that will wipe, wipe Danville and the Confederacy off the map. Um, so Haney and Bell work together for mutual and to meet. They, they have different objectives, but they can accomplish them by working together. So um, they get to Danville. They do their job. They get it done. She stops it. So technically, she still completed her mission because the package did reach Danville. She just ensured that it couldn't be used uh, and then her and Haney go their separate ways and that's it and uh, we get on to the third book Dreadnought um, now Dreadnought is um, it, when I first read it it had been a while since I would read Bone Shaker so things didn't click initially uh, Dreadnought starts in a uh, the Robertson Hospital in Richmond Virginia and um, she, Mercy Lynch uh, Nurse Mercy her name is actually uh, Vanita Swackhammer um, but she had gotten married, and everybody calls her Mercy. She's not even sure why they call her that, but all the soldiers call her Mercy, so she just goes by Mercy. Um, she's a, a nurse, a very good nurse at the Robertson Hospital. And on the day that the book starts, uh, Clara Barton from the Red Cross shows up um, to tell her that her husband, she, Mercy, 
is a nurse for the Confederacy, but she had married a Union soldier. She was from a border state, and so was he. They got married, and then he had gone off to war when they were newlyweds. So he's been, she hasn't heard from him in nine months. So when Clara Barton shows up, she shows up to tell her that her husband died in Andersonville, and um, Mercy doesn't know what to do with herself, and almost immediately afterwards, she receives a telegram from Seattle, of all places, uh, from a Sheriff Wilkes telling her that her father, Jeremiah Swackhammer, uh, has been injured and is near death and wants to see her. Uh, the confusion for her is that her father took off when she was ten, you know, before she turned 10, and she she didn't really know her father anymore. She, but she was at a loose end, um, so she decides to go ahead and make the perilous journey <laughs> from Virginia to Seattle. Uh, it's And it's crazy, the, the things that she goes through. Um, the airship that she's on for the first part of the journey uh, accidentally gets shot down in friendly fire, and she is enlisted as a nurse to help some of the soldiers that are there in the camp where she gets shot down before she gets on her way to the next stop and the next stop, and she takes a steamboat, and it's still going on, and she finally lands on a train called the Dreadnought. The Dreadnought is big, it is scary, it is a Union train, and it is monstrous. It's described at one point as prowling the tracks, and it's, it's crazy. So she gets on the Dreadnought, and there is a lawman named Horatio, um, what is his name? Corman. The lawman Corman. He's a Texas Ranger. Oh, yeah, because uh, in this, this, this new America, <laughs> Texas, ever the shady and wily fuckers that we are, Texas is the Republic of Texas. It's its own republic, and technically, Texas is neutral. Um, they're kind of p- providing weapons and, and stuff to, and supplies to both sides, but really, they're they're more rooting for the Confederacy. Shocker, I know. Um, but theoretically, technically, Texas is neutral, um, and Corman is a Texas Ranger, so he shows up, and we find out that he is looking for some a me- troop of Mexican forces that disappeared from Texas um, some months ago. And then we come to find out that they were infected with blight gas from an airship that went down in the panhandle and wandered off, and they were taking up more people as they went and eating people and converting them, and they wander into Utah among the Mormons, and all of this stuff happens. And at the same time, the train is being pursued by some rebels who want what's in the train, which is a shitload of gold and uh, land deeds that are going to be given to the Chinese because the Union is running out of soldiers. Uh, so they're going to enlist the Chinese because nobody wants the Chinese. Nobody wants them in California. So the Union is going to give them land deeds, move them to the Midwest, um, where, as far as they're concerned, they and the, the Native American tribes that are left can kill each other off. So the there's uh, some rebels that are chasing the train to stop it because they don't want these land deeds given to these Chinese farmers who will have to be soldiers first because that's more bodies for the war machine and on and on it goes. Um, so this, all this horrible shit happens, and in the end, the train is being chased by rotters, and the rebels are jumping onto the train. They're being rescued by uh, the Union forces because nobody wants to die like that. Uh, and eventually, after all of this, Mercy will end up in, um, will finally make her way to Washington and meet her father, and she stays there. She starts studying the rotters. She wants to know what the hell is going on, um, and that's. A bad description of Dreadnought. Now, Ganymede is the next one. And uh, this one is about Andan Cly, um, the one we met in the first book. 
He, we come to find out um, that quietly and under the radar, he has been uh, falling in love with Briar Wilkes, and she has been falling in love with him. Uh, so he decides to go straight. He's been a sap, um, he's a sap pirate at this, to this point. What they do is they the airships drop into the Seattle and down low in the Seattle walls with these huge bags that can scoop up the gas and take it out to be processed into sap. He's going to go straight, uh, or at least straighter. He's not going to push drugs anymore. So he is going to um, take his ship out to Texas. Sorry, not Texas. He's going to take it to New Orleans. Um, And the reason he's doing that is because he also happens to receive a note from an old paramour named Josephine Early, uh, who runs a brothel in New Orleans. Um, She's an amazingly beautiful uh, mixed-race woman. She runs a brothel in New Orleans. I already said that. But... um, they were involved for a time many, many years ago, uh, more than a decade ago, and they split apart, and that was it. Now, he gets a telegram from her stating that she needs his help with a piloting job, so he figures he might as well. He can go down. He can get the ship refitted. He can make a supply run um, and find out what she needs and you know get paid for a job, get a little bit more money. But when he gets there, he finds out that he's not going to be flying, um, he is, they want him to pilot this unbelievable war machine. It's a submersible. It's called the Ganymede. And actually, these types of submersibles, and I think the Ganymede itself did exist. If you look up, if you look up um, 19th century submersibles, I think, or something like that, or submarines, you'll find it. They did exist. They were hella dangerous. They killed so many people uh, because they had to figure out the, the, the air flow system. Obviously, if you're down there trapped under the ocean in this container, you need some kind of air pumped into it or you're going to suffocate. So it killed a lot of people. Um, But they need him. This thing has been um, designed and built, and what Josephine and her brother are trying to do and the the other um, uh, rebels against the Confederacy in New Orleans are trying to do is get this machine to the Union because they feel if the Union can um, duplicate it, can reverse engineer it, build one of their own, um, they can turn the tide of the war. So... Cly basically has to pilot the Ganymede down um, from... They, they have to get it out of Lake Pontchartrain train where it's being hidden and to the Mississippi, and he's going to have to pilot this damn thing down the Mississippi uh, to the mouth of the river where it can be um, taken up by the Union forces. But, again, it's dangerous. And uh, also, Lawman Corman shows up in New Orleans about the same time, making friends with Josephine. Um, because there are rotters in New Orleans as well, we're finding out. So now we've got rotters in Seattle where they started. We've got uh, the rotters that ended up, that started in Texas and moved up to Utah because of the blight gas that was dropped on them from the, cl- the sh- uh, crashed airship. And now there are rotters showing up in New Orleans. Um, so long story short, Clyde pilots the ship, pilots the submersible finally out to... Um, the Mississippi, or out to uh, the mouth of the Mississippi, the ship is picked up by the Union, and they're going to be able to use it. And the book ends with Josephine and lawman uh, Ranger Corman <laughs> stalking the docks of New Orleans, um, shooting rotters and having target practice. Now, what we'll do is move on. Uh, the next book was called The Inexplicables. This one was a little different. Uh, it focused mostly on Rector um, Sherman, the kid from the first book, the friend of Zeke's, the, the drug dealer. Um, he's been living in the orphanage all these years, but he's turning 18, and so he's going to have to go. He can't stay there. Um, and he's used so much of his drug that he thinks he's being haunted 
by ghosts to people he used to know. Um, and so what he does, he, when you find out, you find out that he's being haunted by Zeke because he doesn't know that Zeke is still alive and inside the walls and has been happily living there for, what, six months now? Um, he's just, he's so messed up from this horrible drug that he thinks that Zeke is dead and he's seeing Zeke's ghost. So what he decides to do, he feels that he needs to go into the walls and um, find him, save him, or put him to rest since he believes he's the one that got him into the situation in the first place. So he sneaks over, he gets inside the walls, he finds that it's, it's, you know, it's horrible, it's full of the undead, it's choked with gas, and oddly, now he finally will run into Zeke and Angeline, um, but there's a Sasquatch, or actually two, blight-infected Sasquatches running around, and the, this was not my favorite one, so this, this summary is going to be a little shorter, um... It was a little odd. Like I said, the, the Sasquatch just seems like an extra complication uh, in a series that was already really complicated. And, I mean, you've got zombies. I didn't know if you need Sasquatches. So this one is mostly about Rector um, finding a path in life. And also, Rector Sherman is a supremely unlikable character to begin with. So this was not my favorite one. But if you like Bigfoots and zombies, get the Inexplicables. Um, so that's one I don't know as much as about. Like I said, I've only read it the once. Um, but after that, and now all of this time, Mercy um, is still working inside the walls on the blight issue, and she's been corresponding with different doctors and nurses in other parts of the country. She's still writing back and forth to um, her supervisor from the Robertson um, to try to figure out what this is. So then we move on to Fiddlehead. Uh, Fiddlehead is the name of a computer, <laughs> an early computer, that has been created by a, an ex-slave named Gideon Bardsley. Uh, he's brilliant. He is super fucking brilliant, but he is an ex-slave. He is colored, and so he may have created an amazing machine, but equality, what are you going to do? Um, and so people find out what he's done with this machine and what it can do, because basically what the fiddlehead can do... Um, it's going to show how the Civil War is going to end and what can be done. Uh, it's, 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 a, a, it's a pattern engine, pattern-making engine. So it's, it can figure out how to stop the war. Um, but there are forces, as with anything, um, behind the scenes who want to keep the war going. Shocking, I know. That never happens. Not in real life. Um, but there are gun manufacturers uh, that want to keep things going because they make massive profits off both sides. Um, like I said, Civil War. Like 20, 25 years this has been going on. Bodies being thrown into the meat grinders over and over and over again. Everybody's running out of bodies. There's no eligible men left anymore or very few. Um, but people are getting rich. So Beardsley's invention can tell how to stop it all, um, can calculate it out, so he needs to be killed, and his machine needs to be stopped, clearly. Um, so he has to go to his patron, who is the former president, Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, Lincoln didn't die in this. Um, he managed to survive, so he's still alive. Uh, he did retire, though, after the assassination attempt, but he is fascinated with Beardley's, Beardsley's abilities, um, and he, he really believes that if people could see the data that the machine comes up with and the toll that it's taking, um, they'll know. Because if they don't, what the machine is calculating is that the end of the world, basically, if the war doesn't stop. So Lincoln wants to show this to the people that matter to try to get them to stop the war. 
Um, but he's got to keep Beardsley safe, so he calls on Pinkerton. And that's when Maria Bo- Maria Isabella Bellboyd shows up again. Um, she has been enjoying her job. She's been doing very well. Um, but she has also, she does still have lingering Southern loyalties, and so that's what's going to help her um, figure out. She, she will manage to sneak back into the territory um, and figure out who's, who's after Beardsley and why. And the problem is that there are um, bad guys on both sides, obviously. There always are. Um, you know, the Warhawks don't want to stop what's going on. So she's got a lot of people to fight against to keep Beardsley alive and get this machine, this fiddlehead, into, you know, completed to do what it needs to do. So that's Fiddlehead. Um, 33 minutes, and that is six books. That's a rough introduction, but that's okay because uh, it's the other stuff that we want to talk about that's, uh, that we really need to get into. So I am going to take a momentary break. I am going to have some water. Uh, We are going to have a bit of a musical morale booster, and then we will get into the underlying um, foundations, the underpinnings of the books, and why they're so socially important, uh, and what what we can glean from them. So enjoy this music, and we'll be right back.
come to life and we're back that was rebel angels by rachel mason uh, if you enjoyed that and you would like to hear some more steampunk adjacent, steampunk type, steampunk influenced music, I would highly suggest you check out the Clockwork Cabaret podcast. Uh, you can get that on most um, podcatchers. They are on a summertime hiatus, but they do have a very large back archive because they've been going for almost 10 years now. So check them out. Give them a listen. I guarantee you will not be disappointed. Now, on to the discussion of the Sherry Priest books and why I think that they are important. Um, when Sherry Priest initially wrote these books, uh, the reason was her inspiration, um, what she had said was that she, she got into steampunk and she was searching online forums um, and there seemed to be a bit of a tiff between American steampunk and British steampunk at the time because... Um, steampunk has to be about Victorian England is what she was reading um, and she didn't feel that that was correct she said you know America had colonialism we had technolo- a technological revolution we had an industrial uprising we had wars we definitely had the socioeconomic disparity um, so she decided to show that America could be steampunk too now what's also been said unfortunately is that um Possibly setting it in America. Uh, by setting it in America, we're only exchanging uh, nostalgia for British imperialism for a romanticized vision of America. I don't believe that that's true, um, but that's that's one way that it could be could be viewed. Um, and this information is from Clockwork Rhetoric, the language and style of steampunk. Uh, there will be a link for the book in the notes. But it is a very very good book if you are interested in steampunk literature. Uh, I highly recommend you get it. Now. As far as the Sherry Priest books themselves, the Clockwork Century series, um, in a book called Steaming into the Victorian Future, a steampunk anthology, um, her books are described by uh, Julianne Todaro as um, in the vein of social problem novels. Uh, and These are, are books where the social issues are, are put into the foreground very prominently in order to bring forward, um, bring these issues forward and, you know, as a call to reform. Uh, Charles Dickens is a very good example of a social problems novel. And the Sherry Priest novels do fit the social issues because uh, there's destruction of the environment. We have struggles with the working class. We definitely have social manipulation through the drug trade. Um, So I do believe that this book does fit with the social problems, the social issues novel uh, very well. All of them do. Um, One of the issues... That is obviously first and foremost and front and center in these books uh, because the civil war that's been going on 20 years is going to be uh, racism. It's called out. It, she describes it in all of the books in a very matter-of-fact way. It's not celebrated at all. Um, it's, you see these, these horrible situations, and they're depicted as being just a part of the situation, a part of life, because that is how, that they, that's how they were viewed. So we see that it's horrible, but we also see how insidious it was and how ingrained into the society it was. Um, And you can see this clearly and obviously um, in Clementine with Krog and Haney and um, his issues with pairing with Belle Boyd. Um, And not even his issues so much. He's a little more pragmatic, but his first mate, uh, Simeon, who 
Also, by the way, I accidentally said Simeon was uh, East Indies. He's not. He's British West Indies. Uh, he's from one of the islands. Um, he does not want to work with Belle. He doesn't like her. He would rather leave her to die, um, and that's understandable. But Krogan mentions um, part of the reason he needs to work with Belle is for the simple fact that she, as a white woman and a southern white woman, is going to be able to go places that he can't to get the information that they need. Um, he also is also leery of working with her, though, because he makes the comment at one point about um, being in the wrong place at the wrong time when a white woman says something that can end up getting a black man uh, killed. So he works with her, but that's as far as it goes. It's a partnership, and that's it. Um, now, Dreadnought, uh, we also see it. There is a, a lovely woman who is a restaurant owner. Um, she's actually just franchised herself. She's very well off. Clearly, by the way she's dressed, uh, her, her very well-kept and well-dressed children. Uh, she's better dressed than most of the people on the train, but um, she approaches Mercy because her son injured his foot. Um, she was, wants to know if Mercy could help. Mercy's got her Red Cross on all the time, so everybody knows she's a nurse. So Mercy has to go to the back of the train with this woman to uh, take a look at the boy because the woman's moneyed, she's a business owner, but she still has gets no respect, and she's still put in the back of the train. Um, and even when Mercy, the woman will give uh, Mercy a, a voucher to have a, a, a meal at her restaurant. The restaurant's very nice. Mercy feels actually um, too low class to be there. And she ends up having um, a meal with some other people from the airship crash that she had met. And when um, Mercy mentions that she had helped the lady that, the lady that owns the place... Um, the woman that she's having dinner with raises her eyebrow and says, Lady, I thought a, a colored woman owned the restaurant. So they're eating her food, they're paying for her expensive dishes, but they have no respect for the woman that owns the restaurant. Um, now, in Ganymede, uh, the large majority of the freedom fighters were uh, the black, the, the freed slaves, the runaway slaves, uh, mixed race. And it was pirates, and it was also sex workers that worked under uh, Josephine. Um, there were many mixed and... Um, full African women that worked in her house. And there is actually also, to throw this in, one of them I will end up finding out. Um, the one that's in love with her brother is transgender. Uh, so that's an interesting situation. And then Fiddlehead, um, we clearly have the inventor that is African-American. But again, like the restaurant owner in Dreadnought, uh, he's brilliant and he's done amazing work, but he gets no respect for his work. You know, they just... It's, it's almost like they can only give so much and no more. <laughs> we, we can give them a little bit of credit, but not too much. We can't do too much. It's, it's insane. Uh, and Bone Shaker also um, does cover, um, does delve into the, the racism. As far as the segregation of the Chinese laborers, the ones that work underground, um, pumping the air, if they were not there pumping the air into the underground, everybody would die. They are the ones that do all the hard work, all the hot, sweaty, steamy work down in the tunnels. Um, but they are kept segregated or they choose to keep themselves segregated, but they generally stay away from the other doornails. They provide the water or they provide the air, but that's about it. Um, and also, uh, you know, with the, the situation with um, trying to give land deeds to the, the Chinese laborers in Dreadnought, um, we're not doing it. They're not doing it because they want to give them farms and see them become productive citizens. They need bodies for the war machine, and so it's a win-win situation all around. Either the war is going to kill them off, or they survive, they get their deeds, they start farming the land where the Native Americans are, and everybody gets into an all-out war. 
Chinese and Native Americans and kill each other. So no matter what, everybody wins if the Native Americans and the Chinese wipe each other out. Awesome. So, <clears throat> without the racism, um, and another thing that's, that's one of the reasons, the biggest reason that I love these books so much is the gender relations uh, and the situations with the, with the female characters. Um, the women in these books are so strong and so capable, and they do not need to be saved at all, and they're not looking for love. Um, I, I didn't really notice it at first with Bone Shaker. It took me a while to realize what was going on. I think I actually didn't notice it until uh, the till Ganymede, when the relationship between Briar and Clyde was revealed, that there have been no romantic relationships in the books, really, up to this point. Not like that. Um, you know, with Briar uh, running around the underground, and then Belle and Croggan, or uh, Mercy and uh, Ranger Corman on the train, where a lot of other books or TV shows or whatever would have them thrown together in the heat of the moment. That didn't happen in these books, and I was I, I don't mind romance, but I think that there's a time and a place, and these were not the situations, but some other authors would have shoehorned you know, at least one or two sex scenes into this, and it didn't need to be there. Uh, these women don't need men. Let me say that again, or correct that. They're quite capable on their own. Uh, there, there are still limitations. There are very, very clear limitations, uh, personal and professional, for the women in these world, like Mercy, uh, who is a nurse. That is the job that was available to her. She can't really become a doctor, but she can be a nurse. Or Josephine Early uh, in New Orleans, um, working as a, a sex worker, by her own choice, um, and that's a different discussion that we're not going to have here. Um, but Briar, you know, Briar's job is a little different in that she is doing blue-collar hard work at the water plant, but th- what's left of Seattle isn't really concerned with etiquette so much as survival. Um, now, Belle clearly is a different breed of woman. Um, the woman's a skilled tactician. She's a very skilled spy. She's a firearms expert. But, being a woman, she's still shoved out of the Confederacy um, with only her dead husband's, her dead Union husband's pension. And it takes Pinkerton to see that she may still have some value. So, the options that women have in these books are not great, but they do the best with what they've got, and they do it standing strong on their own. They accept help when it's needed, but it's help that's offered not because they're women, but because the help is needed. And I, I thought that was that was really valuable and really important that they are getting things done. I mean, Briar, when Briar goes into the walls to look for her son, she, she digs out her father's old gear, and she she's a tiny woman too, but she puts on Maynard's uh, leather hat, and she puts on his, his duster, and she gets his, uh, his shotgun out of the closet, a Spencer repeater, straps it to her back and puts on Maynard's belt buckle and she goes in and she she goes to find her son. Mama goes to find her son. And there was no holding her back. There was no, you're a woman, you can't do this. She just did it because it needed to be done. And I thought that was really cool. Um, There's also one thing that I really um, thought was interesting in this and it comes up a few times is, well, especially with what happened with uh, Maynard, um, the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. You know, that Maynard, he was a good sheriff, uh, but he did release the prisoners when the blight was coming through because he didn't want them to die. Nobody should die like that. But 
he was still maligned in death for it. And Briar tells someone at one point, she came home and Maynard was on the bed. He was dead. Um, she was alone. She was young. You know, she would just killed her husband. She was pregnant and didn't know it. The whole city's falling apart. And so she goes out there. She buries her father. And then city officials show up because they want to make sure Maynard didn't just run off. So they dig him up. <laughs> they dig him up to verify that he's truly dead and in the ground and not a rotter or run away. And then they leave him there. And so she has to bury him again. Uh, it's, But he's still, still Maynard's, the spirit of Maynard becomes the patron saint for all the people inside the walls. And, you know, Briar wonders sometimes if her father would have been appalled, you know, that these people were, were touting his name and, but it doesn't, in the end, it didn't really matter. You know, it, it, they, these were still good people. They were living a different life, but they were still good people, and they still deserved, you know, protection. Um, and this this kind of idea also um, we see in Clementine with uh, when Belle subverts her own mission um, and stops trying to, you know, take Haney in and, and stops trying to stop him and instead um, works with him, you know, to find out what is going on. And as far as she's concerned, she did complete her mission. She reports back that she was successful because, like I said before, technically the cargo did reach the sanatorium. <laughs> the, the, you know, the, it didn't do what it was intended to do. And once the cargo reached the sanatorium, that diamond did not stay there. It ended up in someone's purse uh, and carried off again. But she did complete her mission. So spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. Um, now, the two biggest overriding things in these books are uh, the technology gone mad and the sap affliction. Um, And one thing that's, we'll talk about the technology first, because um, one thing that's very noticeable almost right from the start is that all of the machines in the books, and there's more than just the the titles, the the title machines, Uh, there's, there's the books are chock full of, of crazy, insane machinery. Um, but they all have names. The machines are given names. They are made actual characters. They have a physical, visceral um, presence in the books. They are characters in and of themselves. Um, and it's, it's it almost has a way of making you see the machines in another light, another view, um, anthropomorphic almost. They're, they're, they're creatures. They're beings. And it's in all of the books. I mean, the bone shaker, obviously, that starts the whole thing off. You know, this bone shake, this incredible bone shaking machine that rips Seattle apart. And it talks about in the books about it plowing its way through underground and ripping everything out apart. And there was a couple places where it came up out of the earth because the underground was, you know, the, it was too narrow and it came right up out of the earth and went back in again. And uh, in um, when we've got that with the the bone shaker kind of in and of itself right there at the very start of the novels combines two very heady issues that we're dealing with right now. Um, Drilling. There's rising levels of carbon dioxide in the air. There's fracking. I mean, I live in Texas and we've had earthquakes the last few years they're small, but they're earthquakes, and it's weird um, because of all the fracking. And also, um, 
the gas itself that's coming out, it's, it's creating a problem. So the blight gas is environmental issues plus carbon dioxide combined into this drilling machine, and it's crazy. And then Clementine, um, there's airships, the, the, the big airship battles. Uh, there's the Free Crow, uh, a.k.a. the Clementine. But there's also the massive, insanely armored Valkyrie, which is the one that Bell ends up helping them steal um, with its ball turrets and its armor, and it's it's very powerful. And my favorite, actually, although my favorite um, machine in Clementine is the weapon that Krog and Haney uses. It's called a, a Rattler, the Rattler. It's a machine gun, um, and what he does, it's massive. It's one of those old crank machine guns, uh, the, like the big barrels, and he <laughs> puts the, with the with the the ammo, the strips of ammo that feed through it. And Krog is a big dude. I mean, he puts this fucking machine gun that should be on a tripod or some kind of stand up on his shoulder and he starts turning the crank as he's walking and just spraying people down right and left but he it only works because she asks him at one point when they're in trouble she's like can you use the rattler he's like it has to be on flat ground walking a steady pace you know, one direction. This that this this weapon is relatively it's powerful as hell, a little bit limited, and it actually works better if someone's walking behind him, helping to steady it up on his shoulder. This gun is insane, and he loves this thing. He carries it around with him everywhere. Um, now, Dreadnought, obviously, the train um, is the monstrous creation in this, but there's also uh, walkers. They call them walkers. Um, if any of you are familiar with the old dime novel, Steam Man of the Prairies, it was the first science fiction dime novel. It was released in the, uh, the 1800s, and it's about a big steam-powered you know, uh, metal man and his adventures. I may actually end up using that for uh, supplemental episodes later. But in Dreadnought, in the book, there uh, are walkers that are very reminiscent of the Steam Man of the Prairies. Um, we only know the name of one. It's the Hellbender. We don't know the name of the other one. But these were created by, or at least some of them, Texas creates some. There's two different kinds. There's the steam-powered, which apparently are not as good because they can get really, really hot and roast the pilot you know, inside, just boil him up like a lobster. The ones that are created by Texas, shockingly, are powered by oil. <laughs> so apparently they run, or petroleum, they run better, uh, they're, they're, um, they're more efficient. So we only know the name of one of the walkers, again, which was the Hellbender, uh, the other one we don't know, but yeah, they're, you can hear that she describes the clonking and the stomping and the, the machines coming together and crashing. It's almost, I don't know, like great big Cybermen just colliding. It's ridiculous. And then in, also in Dreadnought, uh, when the train is being chased by the rebels who are trying to get to the gold and land deeds, um, there are these little weird machines that are in it, and they call them meat baskets. They're like these, almost like metal mechanical tumbleweeds, and they have, I think, two dudes in them, and they, they, they're armed, they have guns, and they're fast, but they can also go flying apart if they get hit right. They're not super safe, but yeah, these little two-man meat baskets that are just zipping along beside the train, it's, oh, it's insane. The Ganymede submersible, um, 
again, that one is, as far as I know, that is based off of a real thing. And Sherry Priest, in an interview that she does, she mentions that the ideas for all of this came from uh, going through the archives, the Peyton archives at the University of Tennessee. I think it was Tennessee. And um, the, the, the patents that were there for inventions that were never, you know, never actually built because they ran out. They're war machines. Basically what she said is that they're war machines, but we ran out of war. And so these machines were never built, but the patents are still there, and they're for just crazy, insane shit. And the Ganymede submersible, I think, is one that was actually built, but like I said, it killed a lot of people. Um, go look it up. Pause. Go look it up. Um, but it's it's this giving these machines the, these names. Um, I don't want to say humanizing, but they're almost being humanized. Um, they, you know, they steam and they smoke and they spit and they boil and they're an integral part of the plot. They are necessary. They're driving everything and they are things that could do, they could do wonderful things. You know, the bone shaker could have done wonderful things. It could have drilled for, you know, well, I don't know. I guess if we're drilling, that's still bad for the environment, but the idea is still there. Technology has the capability to do amazing things or terrible things, and too often we put them to use doing the terrible, terrible, terrible things, and we should not, but we do because we're human and we're stupid. Um, and right along with the technology god mad is the, the sap affliction, this drug that's taking over. Um, like I said, it started in, in Seattle, and what happened was um, Minerict. The, the evil mad scientist from, from Bone Shaker, he figured out how to start, or he got people who could figure out how to start processing this nasty shit into a drug. And what he thought he could do was control the economy um, by doing basically what the British did when they flooded uh, China with opium. Um, it did not work, and what happened was he actually, the Chinese workers that were still within this, a lot of the Chinese that were in the end of the Chinese men, because it's all men, there are no women down there, Chinese women down there, it's all men, and a lot of them initially worked for him um, when the walls went up and the city went down, but he indiscriminately tested uh, the early batches of sap on Chinese workers who, they died horribly, just a horrible, horrible deaths, and it cost him... Um, their loyalty it cost him their allegiance they went off they set, went off segregated themselves to a separate section of the underground and that was that you know he it didn't work the way he wanted it to um but what we begin to see is that the sap is moving out among the soldiers especially because mercy this is when mercy first encounters it um she says that they call them weezers um where she was the robertson they would get brought in and they would be set aside to be treated later because what they did, their, their illness, their injury was self-inflicted. They were snorting the stuff. They were shooting it. They were smoking it. They were drinking it. And it left them useless. It left them weak. It left them husks. They had yellow dribbling out of their eyes and their ears and their noses. And just their bodies were melting. But they kept using it. They kept using it. And uh, one that she runs into on her <laughs> harrowing journey, uh, she ends up, tra not trapped, but she ends up in a city overnight uh, before she can take the next train. And she stays at the Salvation Army. Um, 
and the lady that uh, gives her a room there makes, says, you know, oh, I'll, I'll give you a bed here for the night, but since you're a nurse, uh, you have to do something for me. I need you to look at these, these three men that are here and tell me what's wrong with them because we can't figure it out. And when Mercy goes into the room where the men are chained to beds, they're all sapheads. They're all weezers. They've, but it's gotten to the point, they're even farther along than anything Mercy's ever seen. Um, and actually one tries to bite her. Apparently they, they do, they reach a point where they will start trying to bite. So the sap is very reminiscent of, again, social manipulation through drugs, um, controlling the events, controlling the outcome. And also, uh, one, one of the things that we see in Dreadnought, um, part of the, the harrowing journey of Dreadnought is that while the, the forward cars are full of the gold and the land deeds, there's also a, a caboose that everybody is told that the caboose is uh, the noble dead being taken home um, to be buried. But nobody is allowed into the refrigerated car where the bodies are. Um, it's all very hush-hush. The whole thing's like the windows are blacked out. It's sealed. It's got rubber seals. It's it's weird, and something clearly is not right. So, Mercy and another uh, female passenger uh, have to take, get the wherewithal to climb up while the train is at a stop being repaired. They climb up. They pop the seal on the roof vent and almost die when the smell hits them. And then they climb in, and what they find, it's not dead it's dead soldiers but they were not wounded in battle they're dead soldiers who died from sap who took too much sap um their bodies are being preserved and there's also jars full of the sap uh in crates in that car and what they find out later is they're beginning the union is going to start delving into biological warfare they want to use the sap to end the war Uh, so i don't know if if it was intentional on Sherry Priest's part to to make the the saps you know look like almost mustard gas, and we know if you know your World War One history, you know what mustard gas does. It's absolutely horrendous. Um, so the sap is going to be used or not going. It ends up being they they foil the plot and it can't you know it, the doctor that's trying to get all this stuff back to the Union he he doesn't succeed. But yeah, it's it's very very reminiscent of plague blankets um, and, you know, chemical weapons and the shit that we still do to each other. It's it's all right there. And this also ties in with um, another thing that we see too much, uh, which is military secrecy and military overreach. Um, because the military is, you start to find out the military has all sorts of hands. Union and Confederate, everybody's got hands in this. Everybody's, everybody's guilty of something. And when Mercy is talking to the ranger, the Texas ranger on the train, when we're getting down to the, to the meat of the situation, and they're talking about the captain on the train, and whether he knows, and Corman, and whether he knows what's going on with the sap and, and everything else, and... Uh, Corman tells Mercy, he says, no, he says he strikes me as a, as a competent officer and competent officers are never given enough information to work with. So the good officers aren't given all the information because they wouldn't do what they were told to do if they knew everything that they were supposed to do. Um, so it's, there's a lot involved in these books. Uh, like I said, they're, they're good books. They're long, not too long. Um, but 
they, they, they do touch on a lot of the social issues, the things that we still see now. Um, you know, the, like I said, the, the casual, casual racism in some places, the overt racism in others, um, you know, the, the, the women that are, that are moving along and trying to survive even while they're being held down and, and limited and, you know, not allowed to do a whole lot of what they want to do, but the ones that have the, the strength and the intelligence, they're going to, they're going to muscle through. I mean, Mercy, Mercy was just a nurse at a Confederate hospital. And by the end of the books, she's helping to crack the case of the sap poisoning and what's going on with it and what it's being used for. And, you know, Briar, Briar becomes Sheriff Wilkes and she provides the law and the justice for, you know, this, this underground group of leftovers and doornails and, and Belle, Belle just wants to make things right. You know, she, she, she still has lingering loyalties, but she's beginning to see that this needs to stop. It needs to end. And she's not a, she's not above putting her loyalties aside to compromise when a job needs to be done. And Josephine Early, the, the madam in Ganymede in New Orleans who whose public face is that of a brothel owner but she's trying to make her city better she's trying to get you know Texas the Republic out of New Orleans and get the Confederacy out of New Orleans and she's working on the side you know to to ensure that there's an end to this and she she investigates she follows Republicans and Confederates She's hunting zombies on the docks of New Orleans. This woman is strong, and she is brave, and she wants to make a better world. Um, these, these are all women that, that take charge because they have to, and not necessarily because they want to. It's put into their hands. I mean, Mercy is put through her paces in Dreadnought. Um, she works so hard. I think she's one of the ones that works the hardest out of all of them, maybe, just the whole way through, this the trip from Virginia to Seattle, I think, takes her a month, maybe a month and a half, and it is fucking horrible. I mean, everything that happens to her, and she loses all of her shit at one point. She has to buy all new, you know, stockings and, and clothes and th- because she loses everything, and but she still has a Red Cross bag, so everybody knows she's a nurse, and so everybody wants Mercy's help all the time, and she does it. She gets tired, and she's exhausted. Um... And she ends up, she's not able to save his life, but she's trying to, when the, the airship crashes and she's, they're in the camp uh, with the, the Confederate soldiers and she's, they want them, they want her to save their captain who's dying. And she tries, she, because their own doctor got shot like right through the nose. So she's trying to help the captain, but there's no way. He's, he's riddled with, you know, with shot and he's, he's bleeding to death. Um, she makes him more comfortable, but that's all she can do. And when she's about to leave, they give her, some of the soldiers gift her uh, the six shooters that had belonged to the dead doctor. They figure she might might need them where she's going. And so she's on the train as they're being chased, and she's got her, her work dress on and her apron and her blue you know, nurse's cloak and six shooters strapped around her waist. She's badass, you know. She, she, she does what needs to be done because it needs to be done. Um... And that's, I think that's one of the big things about these books is that everybody just does what needs to be done. Um, it sucks and it's hard, but the situation, things can be made better, um, but we need to figure out what the problems are first. And I think 
in these books, uh, Sherry Priest, I think she touched on everything very well. Um, like I said, the, 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 you know, the, the racism and the gender relations are covered. They're not overt, but they're not hidden. Like I said, she writes them in just as a matter of fact. Uh, and so we're, we're given to see how casual and regular this kind of behavior was. Um, because it's, it's not exemplified. It's not made much of, but it's still very striking for all that. Um, you see it and you feel it with these characters, but they're, you know, these people who just want to live a life and, you know, take care of their families and they're held back because of their race or because of their sex or whatever it is. And I think she handled it well. Um, obviously, there's always room for improvement, but I think she did a good job. But like I said, the, the biggest part of these books is the insanity of the technology, the, the struggles of the working class um, and what the SAP is doing to them and what the technology is doing to the entire country and the fact that a machine, you know, the last book, a machine is going to tell the world, tell us all that the world is going to end. You know, so I think these books are important. And like I said, Inexplicables is a little odd, um, but it's, it's part of the story. Now, the novelette, the novella, Jacaranda, uh, I have not read that, but from what I understand, it's not it's so much steampunky. It's Ranger Corman investigating as something in South Texas. Um, it's not really steampunky from what I've been told. It's got more of a supernatural aspect to it. And that's not out of character for Sherry Priest because these are not her only books. She's got a whole lot. She's really good. So you should go look for those. But uh, the novella, I believe, is called Tanglefoot. And it's about the situation in Danville at the asylum where Clementine is being taken just prior to the events of Clementine. It's really short, and it's, it's very good as well. Um, so... That's The Clockwork Century with Sherry Priest. And, again, they are very good books. They are very exciting, um, but the issues are very, very front and center, uh, and it's clear that there are things happening that should not be happening. But it is wrapped around a very exciting story with very, very strong female characters who don't need a man to help them uh, get things done. They are getting the shit done themselves, or they are are equal partners um, working with the, the men and women in this book. Everybody... All the partnerships in these books are equal footing, and that's what I, I really loved about them. So um, that is, again, that's The Clockwork Century with Sherry Priest, uh, and I believe that concludes this discussion for the day. If you like what we've done here, please don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. Even if you don't use iTunes to listen, you can still rate and review as long as you have an iTunes account. Your opinion really does matter, and it does have an impact on how many people can find us. Uh, So in that vein, I want to say thank you to Manic Depressive Robot for their recent iTunes review. I also want to say a very ginormous thank you to the Clockwork Cabaret podcast, the Steamrollers Adventure podcast, and the Texas Steampunk Connection podcast. I received some really terrific shout-outs from each one of them, and I encourage you to seek them out, subscribe, and enjoy. You can find links for these in the show notes. And finally, I'd like to say thank you to Sandy, that queen of the kick-ass word search when she's not idly pushing tables up and down the library lobby. If you would like to contribute your vocal tones to our intro, we really would like that, and it's super easy. You just need the voice recorder on your smartphone and a can-do attitude. Please email me at steampunkdollhouse at gmail.com with the subject line, intro offer, and I'll send you the script and the instructions. And with that, we're done. We'll see you in two weeks for... Coin-Operated Boy, or How the Clockwork Slaves Found Their Names, with Ian Tregillis' The Alchemy Wars Trilogy.
Steampunk Dollhouse is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download at www.audibletrial.com slash spdhpod. This week, I'm recommending Sherry Priest's Bone Shaker, book one in the Clockwork Century series, narrated by Kate Reading and Will Wheaton. Visit audibletrial.com slash spdhpod to download Bone Shaker or any one of Audible's 180,000 titles. That's www.audibletrial.com slash spdhpod. Steampunk Dollhouse is a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, 4.0 international license. It is written and produced by Elizabeth Hedrick. Production assistance, artwork, and moral support provided by Matt Davis. Additional assistance provided by Josephine Davis, who, much like Lydia, is sworn to carry my burdens. Our intro music is Baby I'm Not Your Lady by Singin' Sadie. Our exit music is Good Night by the Knickerbocker Quartet. These songs and all other episode music can be found at freemusicarchive.org. All episode sound effects can be found at freesound.org. For complete attribution, see the show notes or visit our website at spdhpod.com. Being overrun by book burners and golf-playing demagogues? Contact us for assistance at steampunkdollhouse at gmail.com or on Facebook and Twitter at spdhpod. Want to help keep the library generators fueled? Visit our support page at spdhpod.com. Any contributions you can make will be amazing and sincerely appreciated and will enable us to begin making kick-ass Bunker Buster merchandise as soon as possible. And finally, we thank you for tuning in. I'll keep reading your rights for as long as you keep listening. Blue Stocking out. Eon. Stately. Symphony. Symphony.